occurrence that happened two weeks ago that I had not got up to start with and just let someone else get up instead of me. So hopefully my lesson will be something that you can take advantage of and, and make use of in your life. There was a tale in olden times called The Woodcutter's Wishes. There was a man and his wife that lived in the forests of Germany. They went, ever, went out every day and they would cut wood and they'd bring it home and some of it they would cut up into firewood and some of it they would fix where they could sell to people for carving images and carving doors and things like that. And one day the woodcutter and his wife were out in the forest and they were cutting down these real nice walnut trees. And there was one who had, it was great big around the base of it. And the woodcutter reached back to swing his axe into it. And just before he swung toward the tree, he heard a real faint voice. And he couldn't figure out what it was. And he asked his wife to listen. He reached back again and heard this faint voice again. He said, if I heard it this time, he listened real close. He says, please don't cut down my home. And he looked around to the base of the tree and there was a little forest elf at the base of the tree. And the woodcutter kind of kneeled down to him and says, what did you say? He said, I said, please don't cut down my house. And he said, well, why shouldn't I? And the little said, if you will save and spare my house and not cut it down, I'll give you three wishes. You can do anything you want with the three wishes I'll give you. The woodcutter thought for a minute and he thought, well, it's, been, it's late in the day and I'm tired anyhow and this is a big tree and so... I'll just not cut it down, and if the three wishes come true, then I'll be better off for it. And so he told the little elf, said, I'll spare your house. You give me the three wishes. So he and his wife walked home. He had his axe on his shoulder, and she had the bag that they carried the different pieces of wood into. They walked home. They were talking about what would they do if they had these three wishes. And they talked about it, and they couldn't figure out what they wanted to do. And they got home, and they were sitting. Of course, the woodcutter was tired. He'd been cutting wood all day long and probably had a sandwich for lunch, and that's all they had. They were sitting around, and the woodcutter said, I just wish I had a bowl of sausage here. And all of a sudden, boom, there on the table was a bowl of sausages. And his wife went ballistic. What in the world are you wishing for? You wasted one of our wishes. You got a bowl of sausage, and now we got two of them. She was so mad. She said, I just wish your nose was a sausage. And all of a sudden, boop. He has a nose that's got a sausage on it. They got a bowl of sausages, and the old man's got a nose that's a sausage. Good lands, we've wasted two of our wishes now. We only got one more to do. And they thought, and they thought, and they thought, and they know, I can't leave that man with enough sausage on his nose, you know. And I can't, this bowl of sausage is not going to taste good at all now since I've wasted my wishes. So they finally agreed they had to have one more wish and all they could wish for was everything to go back like it was before this started. And that was their three wishes. And they wasted them. Wasted them for nothing. Sometimes I wonder today, if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? Like I said, my first wish today is that when I get through, at least this will have interested you in some way that you can make your life somewhat better based on what I've said. Look at the book of Jude. Jude made a wish. Now I call it that. And he started out with a book. It's kind of an unusual introduction. Jude, and there's only one chapter, but I'm going to say Jude chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. 
Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's the three wishes that James had. I can't imagine a better wish or a better desire or a better hope for someone to wish them mercy, peace, and love, and that being multiplied. A couple of weeks ago, or maybe just a week ago, Brent was preaching a lesson, and at the close of the lesson, or the latter part of it, he was talking about something that people today want justice. Everybody's crying out for justice. Do you really want justice? Think about it. Do you really want justice? What is justice in our lives today? Well, Romans, you know, the third chapter tells us that all men have sinned. And the sixth chapter tells us that the wages of sin is death. Now, do we want justice from God in reference to our lives? Or do we want, like Jude cried for, mercy? What is mercy? Many times we use a simple definition to say mercy is undeserved or un, uh, undeserved favor or unmerited favor. Now, I think we can go further than that in a really good definition. Mercy with regards to God is to show compassion or to extend forbearance to those who deserve judgment and punishment. It's the clemency of God towards sinful men. I don't want justice in my life. I can tell you that right now. I don't think you do either. I want mercy from God. And I want it overbearing and overruling and over, overcoming everything else. Because I need mercy. There are some things in my life, and I'm sure probably in yours too, that I'm ashamed of. I wish I had never committed those things. And with God's mercy... I can put those things beside and behind me and look forward to a life in eternity with God. In Matthew chapter 5, in part of the Christ's sermon, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. There is, a, there is a restriction on how much mercy God will give to me. And sometimes it's kind of scary when you think God extends mercy to me based on how much mercy I extend to others. And a lot of times in my life, that's been a hard thing for me to do. And I'll, I'll admit that's one thing that I struggle with mightily, is having mercy on others. Sometimes I feel people need justice. I don't want it, but they need it. You know, I, 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 uh, I would shudder to think, if sometimes when I have judged others, that I would be judged like I have judged them. There was an instance in a congregation where we formerly attended some time ago where a woman committed improper sexual acts. And the preacher, and he was readily able to forgive her. But for some reason, I felt like that woman needed to be punished she needed to be held in, uh, in uh, responsible for what she had done. And nobody was willing to do that. They wanted to forgive her. And I didn't think she did, should be forgiven. And what right did I have to feel that way? I felt like her husband had been wrong so bad 
badly, I guess is the correct word, that he needed to be, you know, allow her to be more punished. Everybody else was willing to forgive her. And I was wrong in doing that, wrong in feeling that there was a need for punishment there. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13, whoever shuts his ears to the poor will himself not be heard. If I don't open up my heart to those who are in need when I have the ability to help them out, when it comes time for my prayers to go to God, what will God do? Well, the proverb writer says he will shut his ears to what I'm trying to cry to God for. How many times have you seen something that you should extend mercy to, but you were unwilling to because you felt maybe a little self-righteous like I did? You felt maybe a little bit better than that person? Or you felt that person needed to be punished for what they'd done and you didn't allow them to be forgiven? Maybe you don't have that problem in your life, but I fight against that a lot of times when I feel like someone needs punishment and they, hadn't, they haven't received the proper amount. I'm the proper judge. I take God's place. God, I'll tell you, I'll help you out and I'll tell you when this person needs to be forgiven. But not right now. Let's wait a little bit longer. Do you ever find yourself in that situation? But well, Jude didn't want that for the people he wrote to. He wanted them to have God's mercy and that mercy to be multiplied. That is just overwhelming them overcoming them greatly. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul pled for those there that he wrote to in Rome to present their bodies as a living sacrifice based upon the mercies of God. You know the word mercies, look with me in Romans chapter 12 while we're, while we're at it. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The word mercies there, you note, is plural. It's not singular. In the old Hebrew language, there was no singular word for mercy. And we use the word mercy singular in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it was a plural word. There was no singular for it. And when you think about that, that's a really good thing to think about because God's mercy is not singular. It's just overwhelming. God's mercy also, Galatians chapter 5, brings us the fruit of the Spirit. All those things that God does for us is based on His mercy. Mercy's plural. Just think about that. Just all over the place, God's merciful to us. And if we want to be like Jude when we think about others, we need to extend mercy. In Matthew chapter 18, there's the parable there of the wicked servant. And many times we study that parable and hope that we're not like that brother that, you know, was forgiven by his master. His master called him in to, to pay his debt and he couldn't pay it at all. And he pled for the master to please forgive him. And the master forgave him all of his debt. Then he went out and he had a person who was under him that owed him a small amount and he wouldn't forgive him, had him thrown into jail. Then when the master found out about that, he brought that wicked servant back in and said, it's based on what you've done, you'll be cast into outer darkness. Are we like that when God forgives us, God extends mercy to us, yet we will not extend mercy to other people who have debts to us? We need to pattern our lives more like God 
more like Jesus Christ and have mercy in our lives. Realize that were it not for the mercies of God, we would be very, very seriously in trouble. We would have no hope whatsoever were it not for the mercies. The greatest thing the mercies of God has given to us is the gift of his son upon the cross. Then Jude says he desires for them to have peace. And there again, that multiplies. What does peace mean? We normally in the English language think about peace being the absence of hostilities or the absence of civil disturbance. We live peacefully somewhat. Now, our lives lately in this world, in this country for sure, there's not been much peace going on. The last couple of years, we've seen everything but peace in our lives. But the peace that comes from God is much greater than that. It means to be made complete, to be made whole. God brings back that which has been severed, that which has been torn apart, and puts it all together. We have been separated from God. Peace with God is being brought back to Him, being brought back into a covenant relationship with Him to have the hope of eternity. What a great peace that is. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Father Jesus Christ. Now, if we, are, if we have our grace based upon knowledge, that means that we need to be studying our Bibles more to have peace. We also find over in Philippians chapter 4 that the peace that we have is based upon turning all of our problems, all of our troubles over to God, realizing that we can't solve those problems on our own. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If we have peace based upon what God does for us and what we trust God to do for us we'll not worry about anything that doesn't mean you don't have worries every once in a while but it means that we don't worry that something will not be taken care of why would you offer prayer to God for peace if you don't think he's going to give it to you sometimes we don't have enough faith in God to do that which he has promised to do he's promised to give us peace peace beyond understanding even I don't know what that can mean other than I don't need to worry about it. It's beyond my understanding. Why do I worry about it? There's some things I can't do right now in my life. There's some situations in our family that we can't deal with. We can't handle. But I don't need to worry about them. You've probably got the same thing. Sometimes children don't react like they should to the father and mother's teaching. You know, you've done all you can do. And I think the Bible's correct that we raise our children up and they'll not depart from it. But there's sometimes that raising, when that child leaves our home, the further raising happens outside our control. It's not what we've taught them to do. It's what they learn to do when they've come into contact with other people. And we can do the best we can do and we can pray about that and then leave it in God's hands. Because we can't change what's done outside of our control. We are to have peace in the body of Christ. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, we are members of one body and we are called to peace. 
It's an awful thing for the world to look at the church and see brethren fighting so much that they can't be recognized as the children of God. Warned in the, old, in the New Testament about the biting one another so much that they devour one another and the world, when they look upon us as the children of God, can't see that. We don't look like children of God. We look like children of the world because we're fighting so much. We need to be careful when we attack our own brethren so much and so hard that the world can't see that we're different. The peace of God should rule in every action. You know that word rule there in Colossians 3.15 is a word that comes from the old Olympic Games. It had to do with the director of the games, who was one who directed everything, who governed everything, made the rules. And we're to have that the peace of God rules in our heart. Those things that God teaches us to do directs everything that we do. The things found in the scriptures leads us to follow God in everything we do. We don't use our own wisdom. We use the wisdom of God to do that. And finally, Jude prayed that love would be for them all, from all and for all. This love that Jude prayed for is the word agape that we find. I didn't realize, I knew that there were three words that we talked about in love, but there are eight different words in the New Testament used for love. I didn't know that. Eight different words. There was very specific things. Brotherly love, a sexual love, uh, just good friend love, all kinds of words. But the word love, agape love, is an unconditional love. It's a selfless love. It's a feeling of goodwill toward others. It's the desire to help others, not based upon what they do for us, but because that's the right thing to do. How many times do you want to do something good for someone just because that's what you should do? The worst thing in the world for me, the hardest thing in the world for me, is to put that word love into proper action. A lot of times if someone's not nice to me, I don't want to turn around and be real nice to them. If they've been hateful to me and kind of raised my hackles a little bit sometimes, I'm not the best person to them. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us not to choose to love people because they're powerful, because they've got a lot of money, because they're good looking, or because they've done a whole lot of good things for me. Christ died for us while what? While we're still yet sinners. God loved us first. That's why we love him. But it's not because God loved us because we were such good people. He loved us when we had caused the death of his son. And he gave his son for us while we were still evil people living in the world. In Matthew chapter 5, won't you look there, please? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Have you heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy? But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Read that again. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. 
and persecute you. Is that the way your life's been? Is that how you've practiced your life so far? Not me most of the time. And I'm not proud to say that. But I want you to know what the Bible says. You've probably read that before. Probably read it as many times as I have. How many times did you stop to think, am I really doing that? When we first started attending here, Steve and I, about a year after we started, I didn't know anything about what had happened to this congregation. I knew that there was a breakup and there were some problems, but I didn't know. Steve and I talked a little bit about it. Stephen said, you know, it's really hard to forgive some of those people because they've said some really mean and hateful things. They've done some really hard things to a lot of members here. And he said it was very hard to practice that passage to people who had caused a division in the church. And I know that's a horrible thing. Those who cause division among brethren are those that God considers to be an anathema. They will answer for that in the day to come. But it's not for us to judge those people now. We must teach them and, and act to them like they are those we love. Now that's not easy to do, I'll admit. It's hard to do. But think how hard it was for God to give His Son on the cross when He looked down and saw me and the life I was living. That wasn't easy either. But you know what? It was easy. Because God is love. Now what, when I was studying this lesson, the writer, and this was not a Bible writer, this was just a, a, a commentary and a dictionary. And he said, you know, when you think about it, God is love. What does that mean? We choose who we want to love, don't we? We choose who we pay close attention to. We choose who we do good things for. God doesn't have a choice in who he loves. Now think about that. God is love. So he can't choose who he loves. He is the very image, the embodiment of love. He loves everybody. Do you think about that? There's a song a young man from Tupelo, Mississippi sings. I don't like a lot of the people I love. You know, that's kind of like I am. I don't like a lot of the people I love. I love, I try to love everyone. That means I try to have goodwill for all people, but I don't like some of them. Now that's, I think, what God is. He doesn't like the sinner, but he loves them. He doesn't like what they're doing. And he gave his son for them, but he loves them. And I think that's the way we need to be. We not necessarily like the people that do bad things. And we want them to change. But we need to have an attitude of love toward them. We need to love our enemies. Bless those that curse us. Do good for those that hate us. And pray for those that spitefully use us. That's not an easy thing to do. But that's what God will do. And that's God, what God wills for us to do. Look at Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12, in the latter part of the chapter there, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that which is good. 
Be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, and distributing the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own, in your own opinion. Down in verse 18, if, you have, if it's possible, as much as you have depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And down toward the latter part of verse 20, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I've always thought throughout my life that heaping coals of fire on the head meant that you gave them so much coals. There's an old story that said people would come to your house and they'd ask for something else you know, because their fire had gone out and they'd ask for a, a, a bag of coals and you'd give them just enough that when they got back home, they'd hurry back home. When they got back home, that last coal had gone out. And they'd come back and he'd ask you again, can I have some coals so I can start the fire? And you give them enough to get and hurry back home and just before they got to the house, that last coal would just die out. And you're just being mean to them. You knew it. You knew you wasn't giving enough to get home. You only looked like you're doing a good thing. You'd get back home and that cold would be dead. What he says is heap coals. Of, that's not what I used to think was. You just heap them up so much that they get back home. All they have to do is just throw it in there and the fire start. I don't think that's what that's talking about anymore. I've studied this a couple of times. And I think really now that really is talking about you'll be like heaping coals of fire. You do so much good to this person that's acting mean to you. And hateful to you. You do so much good to them and you treat them so right that when they think about what they have done to you, it is making them miserable. They can't understand why I feel so bad because I've been doing wrong to you and you turn right around and do great things for me. When you do good for someone that's done bad things to you and finally someday they're going to say, I shouldn't be doing that. I should be treating them right. And that's what it means to heap coals of fire on the head. It's, uh, it makes them miserable. If you'd heap coals of fire on my head, well, I tell you, I don't have any cushion up there. It'd really be miserable for me. You do so much good, that person just finally in the end, they'll change and they'll start being good as well. That's what it means to heap coals of fire upon their head. As I said, this was a hard lesson for me to preach or teach. Someone this morning called me preacher. I said, I don't think I'd go that far. Brother Tim will be up here later on. You call him preacher, you know. It's kind of like when you go to a restaurant, sometimes you want hamburger and sometimes you want steak. Well, this is the hamburger lesson. And we'll have the steak lesson here in another hour or so. This was a hard lesson for me to teach because I know this lesson convicted me of the way I live a lot of my life. And it's made me miserable studying it because I haven't done this way. I haven't done, I haven't acted out of love a lot of times. I've acted out of spite. I'd want somebody to hurt more because I didn't like what they did and the way that they got away with what they did. That's wrong. That's not the right way to live. And you'll be miserable if you live that way in the end. Look at Jude again. This is an interesting book after I read through it. This, I think, was written to Jewish Christians because the way it talks, several, it uses a lot of Old, Old Testament history in its study. But when he gets to the end of the chapter, in verse 17, 
He says, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. I can't see any better description of our times than those people who live according to the sensual ways, those people who are mockers, those who are grumblers and complainers, those who are trying to gain advantage because of flattering people. This, that's the, a perfect description of our times today. Jude could have been writing to us and desiring that we have mercy and peace and love. And if we live with those things in mind, we'll have a much better life, we'll be more pleasing to God, and we'll be a lot happier than we have been in the past. Thank you for your time. I think it's about time for us now to go to our classes.